You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits, Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more, with the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got got to – anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them. Do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than 30 bacterial outbreaks, primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. So good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got, you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices. Because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It also saves your life. 
it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. <laughs> so don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded it? like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce, probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm. Sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No. No. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. <laughs> she may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something... You can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it's an interesting little, I don't know, contrast for me. As I come back, I I just spent a week away, went to uh, Mexico and uh, visited Cancun and also... Uh, one of the new wonders of the world, by the way, in, in the new list of seven wonders of the world, Chichen Itza is one of the places that we visited. And it, it just it's so interesting to me. And then I come and I do a show today this morning about the political world and all of these decisions that we make. Um, I hear about an old world, uh, you know, 600 to 900 A.D. down in Mexico, a Mayan community. Um, and and really, what how how their community turned and how it changed, and then I come and contrast it to our political world, and I think first of all, how seriously grateful we all ought to be that we have a democracy where you still have a vote, you still have a say. You may not like what's going on. You may think a lot of it's going to happen with or without you. It still may feel like a coronation for some of these 
leaders, but there is a big difference between actually just having kings born to kings that then basically run, you know, countries or and cultures uh, into extinction. But you still have a say. You still have a lot of blessing and a lot of opportunity here in the United States. And it really, truly, it it was an important, I think, contrast for me to just go learn about these other cultures. I also learned something that even though they may have been so, you know, uh, so basic, so, um, I don't know, just base type of, of living of humans, they still had the exact same needs, the same wants. They still had kids and children. They still had desires. They still wanted the best for their families, for their lives. Folks, this you got a shot. You got an opportunity as you're here on this great big ball of mud to do something and to be a part of something. And you really got to get intentional about it because in a few hundred years, a few thousand years, you're just an afterthought. Eventually somebody will be, you know, working through your, the rubble of your home and, and remember, oh man, some American must have lived here. It's just crazy how quickly things can change. We were in these incredible ruins, pyramids. We were noticing in a wonderful arena where they would play a game of sport where the teams would go head-to-head. I was imagining the Super Bowl. But in this Super Bowl game, the loser's captain, whatever team lost, their captain would be killed. So you better win. Can you imagine if in our Super Bowl the captain of the losing team executed in front of all of the world. Well, that's what was going on back then. And it's interesting because things change, and yet they also can stay very much the same. So please, as we're all sitting here, you know, all of this news is basically setting up our future. It's setting up how we will be seen, what will impact us, what won't. Will you just get into it? Even if you don't want to get into the political side, start paying attention. Start figuring out what your values are, how you want to be influencing these decisions, these debates. Again, you don't have to get in and fight the good fight, but you should know what's going on. You should know who you're voting for because it is a right that right now at this stage of the world, it's a right that you have the privilege of having. Who knows if it will always stay that way? And I'm not here to scare you, but you will if you make it a point. So get more involved. Get your head wrapped around it because, friends, it's, it's not just always guaranteed. It's not a permanent positive guarantee. And eventually, a 1,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, what will our story be as a country? What will your story be as a person? Will you have connected to your family? Will you have left a legacy for your children, for your grandchildren? It just put in the front of my mind the need to live and to live a good life, a life that could be handed down, a life that you're proud of, a life that you want other people to know about. Interesting, folks. We'll take a break. Stick with us. More ideas, more tools next hour to help you live longer and love stronger. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
How many posts did you like on uh, Facebook today, folks? Or on Instagram? Did you write a Yelp review last night after a bad dining experience? Or give a new song four to five stars? We live in a world where we're always expressing and analyzing our preferences. Why do we like what we like and hate what we hate? And what do these preferences reveal about us? Well, here to tell us about uh, why we like what we like is... Uh, the author, um, Tom Vanderbilt, who is a, a New York Times bestselling author for the book Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. He's now put together this, uh, this great book. You may also like Taste in the Age of Endless Choices. He's uh, spend, en- spent endless hours trying to figure out why we like what we like. And, Tom, we appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, now, you've got these great books and great titles. Why we, like, for example, you may also like is your new book. What What did you learn about our preferences, about our likes? Did anything stand out? And why Why did you even get into this topic at all? Well, I mean, the thing that, that stood out the most, I think, is just that the number of ways decisions we make might really be influenced by other sorts of factors that, you know, the, the stuff we're putting in our mouth, the stuff that we think that we're liking, you know, we, we think it's really about the thing itself, but there's a lot of often subconscious or other kinds of, uh, you know, culturally constructed factors that go into this. So, you know, we, we argue about our taste, but I, I would argue that uh, those tastes can be often, you know, we, we don't often understand what they are themselves or why yeah. we have them. And what, what got me into it was just one of these simple questions you get from a kid. The kid in this case was my daughter, and she you know, like a lot of uh, kindergartners, they were talking about favorites, like, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite color? And she asked me what my favorite color was. And I gave this answer of blue. And I thought, well, that's sort of an interesting thing. I, I don't think it's very uncommon. But why did I do that? Do it, is it really my favorite? If it is, where did yeah. that even come from? So, I, you know, once I started thinking about that, I wondered where a lot of my other preferences came that's- from. It's true. I mean, we were just talking about these new Oreo flavors coming out, and there's a blueberry Oreo flavor, and I immediately didn't like it. <laughs> I haven't even tasted it. But I've not I, heard about this. So it's blue, uh, blueberry and something else? Or yeah, it's, I guess it's just blueberry uh, is the filling inside of the Oreo now. Yeah. And, um, and then they have another one that is kind of like a Fruity Pebbles uh-huh. uh, type of flavor. But neither of them did I like, and yet I had an actual opinion. And I'm thinking, right now, as you're talking, I'm thinking, why do I even have an opinion? Well, it's funny that you bring up something that's uh, you know, kind of an interesting part of, co- of consumer science here, which is that we're sort of, I think as humans, we, we're, we're often kind of hung between liking f- what's familiar and liking what's new. And so those Oreos, I guess, in a way, they, they take an old familiar concept and then apply a new flavor. So, mm. you know, they're kind of... You feel safe on the one hand, but then they're trying to get you to branch out into that. And it might, you know, novelty, though, is kind of frightening. It might take you to actually a few exposures, as they call it, of eating those Oreos to begin to like them. But if you really didn't like them to begin with, you're probably only going to grow to dislike them more. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we talk about endless choice. This is the thing. When I was growing up, we had one kind of Oreo. You're right. Right. Now there's, what, 10 or something? Yeah, the proper kind, really, right? I mean, it wasn't even double stuffed. It was just stuffed. Um, And I think we have so many of these choices that, you know, often we feel overwhelmed or we try to look for shortcuts to make decisions. So the bad side of this is that I think we sometimes write off things ahead of time that we actually may like simply to try to filter out so much information in the Hmm. world. Is now how did you get into and what did you what did you learn about 
why we like what we like. I mean, you said it's complicated because it probably comes from upbringing and expectation. And sometimes it seems like it comes from not really thinking about it. Yeah, and a lot of these things aren't aren't hardwired, per se. I really thought they, there would be more of that. I mean, for, for color, for example, so it turns out blue is the most often uh, chosen favorite color, and especially among men, but, but everyone overall. And um, the, the argument here that I got from a psychologist, the theory that I like the best, he calls it ecological valence. We, if, you take, if you take a list of all the things in the world, in the natural world, and the way we feel about those, and he, he's done interviews, the things that people feel most positive about seem to be, off, more often than not, uh, blue-colored. I mean, the, just take the sky, for example, a clear hmm. blue sky. Who doesn't love that? Right. Uh, water. We need, if we see a body of water, we sort of, you know, makes us feel happy. We're made of water. So, you know, he, he argues that the, that sort of presence of those things, the feeling of that things, kind of almost, you know, subconsciously trickles into our feelings about things that are blue that aren't in the natural world, like, you know, a, a, a shirt. Um, so it's kind of this process of conditioning where, you know, you just come to associate good feelings with it, and that makes you feel good about the thing itself. And if I could just continue here, yeah. the, the thing, there's another theory called processing fluency. I think this applies to music as well. When you hear, start to hear a song a few times and you begin to like it, I think what's often happening is what, what's really happening, you're beginning to understand that song, what to listen for, you know, the, the way it goes, certain unexpected moments, you, you begin to become familiar and sort of fluent in that song. And the argument psychologists have is that w- that makes us feel good itself. I mean, regardless of what the actual song is, just the fact that we're kind of mastering that song. So y- sometimes you hear something the first time, you're really not sure. Then you start to hear it again and again, and you start to get it, and then voila. And oh, yeah. And then you've, yeah, you know right when that drop's going to hit, and you know how it's going to feel, and it, it probably makes life predictable. Yeah, and then the flip side of this is that, you know, like music or food, we can begin to become satiated with something. We just, we've had enough. I mean, there's a more clear reason why that would happen with food than with music, but it just hits that point where you don't want to hear that song again. You have to let it rest for a while, and then uh, you move on, you look for the next new thing. Yeah, and and yet you may still have the same breakfast every morning for years. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny thing. Like, I think we are... um, our tastes shift even in the course of a day. You wake up, and part of this is just practicalities. You're not really going to go out searching for adventurous food the minute you wake up. You just <laughs> want to sort of put something in your mouth, yeah, yeah. break the fast, and you know, get to work. So we, we don't have a lot of adventure seeking in the morning. We, we rely back on these you know, very familiar things, which make us feel comfortable. But by the time dinner rolls around, we might actually have more of an appetite for something new. It's funny that we think of food as adventure seeking, but you know, I guess back in the day you wanted a simple berry. Let's just have berries in the morning, and then in the afternoon when I'm really in for it, I'm going to go out for a hunt and go get something really good for the family. Exactly. I mean, what what is what is familiar is what did not kill you yesterday. So I mean, <laughs> that, right. as you say, back in this uh, you know Paleolithic whatever time, we were food choices were more than just what will I have today it's you know what will help me survive today and it, why go why expend a bunch of energy looking for an apple tree in the next you know village over when the one right in front of you is good i mean what the body tells us is that you know often you know, we do need a sort of a balanced diet ideally so there's this funny mechanism called sensory specific satiety the weird thing here is when you begin to eat a meal the moment you begin eating that meal, your, your liking for that food, as studies have, have kind of shown, 
begins to, to fall off. And it, it will hit a point where you just really can't eat any more of that thing, yet if you brought something else along, suddenly you'd have a reset of your brain and your palate, and you'd be ready to eat at least some of that again. Huh. Just, the body's sort of sending out these little internal signals that, hey, you should move on to something something new. Keep Yeah, yeah keep balancing probably, I guess. Um, talk about the choices we make. I know in the book, you uh, the book titled You May Also Like, you, you talk about the fact that we, we make choices, preferential decisions every single day. How, how many of these are we making a day? I mean, Brian Wanzik at, at Cornell, who's a food researcher, estimates just with food there are 200 decisions a day. And, you know, that's – you can think going to the world now where there's so much to choose from, a, a site like Amazon or simply going out – if you go out for lunch, you have to decide where to go. So you might open a site like Yelp, and then you know you start reading the reviews. And this is something that kind of got me to write the book. I just found myself, you know, I I, w- I like information, so I would find myself reading ten, twenty reviews. And and by the end of reading that those reviews, I'd sometimes be more confused than when I opened <laughs> the, the the site whether I wanted to go to that place or not, because one person had a great experience, the next person had a mild experience. So. I found myself trying to review the reviewers and, and figure out whether they were authorities. And it just, you know, we, we are all expressing these opinions now every day, and it's made life easy on the one hand, but very difficult uh, on the other. Yeah, but 200 decisions on food a day. No wonder we just want to have a favorite. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and some of these sites, I mean, I just, for example, on Amazon, I ordered a pair of bolt cutters that I needed. I, I don't really know what a good brand of bolt cutters is. I just <laughs> I looked and some one one product had four and a half star average reviews, about four hundred reviews. I thought that's probably a pretty good pair of bolt cutters. It's not like someone's going to say as with a movie <laughs> right. you know, I just couldn't relate to the bolt cutters. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's so much easier with, with things that are just products versus what are called, you know, taste goods, books, films, things that's where people start to get really suspicious when they see other people expressing their own personal taste and, and the, the confidence in those reviews falls off. Oh, interesting. Wow. I mean, it's, there's so much to this that I have never even thought about. Um, let's take a break. We're speaking with Tom Vanderbilt, author of the book You May Also Like, Taste in the Age of Endless Choice. Uh, he is a New York Times bestselling author of the book Traffic as well. Um, Another wonderful one to go look up. And you can find him at TomVanderbilt.com. We'll take a break and be right back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger. And today we're helping you understand your tastes. Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, uh, your coach, your guide on the side. Today we are talking with Tom Vanderbilt. Um, You can go to his website, TomVanderbilt.com. He's the author of the book you may also like, Taste in the Age of Endless Choice, which is an illuminating uh, look at why we like the things we like. I mean, a lot of us don't think about it, but we're pretty impressed with certain things, and you may not even know why. Why you like what you like, and he's joining us here. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author of also the book Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. And uh, Tom, we appreciate you being with us. Sure, my pleasure. 
one of the things too it seems like we we not only like our likes but in today's day and age we like to talk about them we we share them and we like to like things <laughs> with facebook and is this a new phenomenon where we're more and more vocal about our likes i don't know if it's so much new but it just the the internet and social media just makes it so much easier yeah. to you know you it takes hardly any effort to post something to then like something. I mean, you, you hinted something here that, that has been sort of seen, is that we do kind of have a bias toward positivity. We don't, especially with, with you know, friends or, or strangers also, we, we like to broadcast our likes. We don't so much like to broadcast our dislikes. We sort of keep those closer to our, our chest. Um, the, the old uh, punk rock musician Johnny Rotten, I think, walked around with a T-shirt that said, I hate Pink Floyd on it, but most people don't do that. They, they, they want to wear a T-shirt with the band that they like. Right, right. And, um, you know, so that, that seems to be a more positive, you know, uh, factor in, in kind of, and people kind of heard on the positive opinions, and, and you see this on, online as well. Do you see that, I mean, a lot of this seems to be about, you know, social, sec- social security, not the not the agency or the program in the government, but just feeling secure socially by promoting what I like to tell everyone else I'm like you. Yeah, this may go even go back to we were talking about sort of um, you know evolutionary biology. This may go back to our our kind of upbringing in small groups and you know where conformity really meant survival that you were inside this small group. But but the thing here is interesting that psychologists have talked about something called conformist distinction which states that, yes, we all want to be like each other, but we all also want to be just a little bit different. You know, you, you, if, you, if you come into work wearing the same thing that your coworker is wearing, you have this kind of you know, nervous laugh for a minute, and you, know, you guys coordinate your wardrobe. So, or let's say your neighbor buys a new car. You really like that car, but you'll feel a bit weird about buying the exact same thing that he has. You'll perhaps want at least a different color, a few different options. So I think we're always you know, trying to just be just a little bit different. And in an age, you know, when, when a lot of people have access to the same things, this makes it more of a difficult challenge to achieve this distinction, that the, the sort of points for distinction become very small. And, you know, where I live here in Brooklyn, New York, you find, like, things like going out for coffee now become, you, you kind of have to, you know, do some research before you go to the coffee shop on what the latest you know, hip <laughs> brewing technique is, yeah. you know, so, so it's, so it's a, to not look like a fool, you know, because so even <laughs> coffee has been made into this sort of, you know, connoisseur item that you really need to know your stuff. Isn't that so true? And it's, yeah, like you're not even literate enough to know your coffees. What is your yeah. problem? And I, I sort of say, I'll, you know, of course I'll have the nitro cold brew without actually knowing what it is. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll look at it later and, and try to figure it out. But um, it's just, you know, and yes, it is good coffee, but it's just another way that, I'm not going to drink that coffee that everyone else is drinking. I need to create something, push the envelope here a little bit. Well, what have you learned about um, our likes and our and being offended? You know, when somebody puts down what we like, or I mean, even I've, we were just talking about the Warriors game uh, with OKC, and I'm thinking, you know, if you put somebody's somebody's team down, that could be deadly. Yeah, this is where you know trying to change someone. To, taste or, or really their behavior at all is, is a big challenge. And I, I think about, I mean, I spent some time in the book. I went to the Great American Beer Festival and was talking to uh, judges of craft at this big craft beer competition and trying to, you know, and 
my father, just to use one example, you know, has always kind of liked your your Budweisers, you know, kind of your... your yeah, your traditional, called, yeah. Yeah, light American pale lager. And at this beer festival, you know, you've got some pretty, you know, interesting, unusual stuff, very, very strong, distinct taste. And I was, I was saying, like, how can I... How do you, you know, sort of introduce this stuff to someone? And they were... One of the judges sort of gave, you know, gave me some good advice, which was, you know, number one, you don't just sort of bring a very hoppy IPA or some, some sort of, you know, very strong beer and slam it down the table <laughs> in front of my father and say, you know, drink this. Try that. It's, it's going to change your life. Because, number one, he was probably just going to think it tastes weird because it doesn't fit his mental model of what beer is supposed to be. And right. Second thing is, as you, as you say, he's going to feel defensive. You know, like what you're saying, the stuff I've been drinking all my life is terrible, which, you know, maybe I am slightly, but I'm, try- I'm just trying to point him that there's another world out there. But like everything, so you need to kind of, you know, open the door slowly, and they, they, they refer to this as a gateway beer. You need something that's a little bit closer to what he's used to, but perhaps just a little bit mm. more adventurous. But yeah, you, you just have to watch out for that sort of defensiveness trap, because we we take these things seriously, these things that we... And why? Been- why did you learn? I guess it's because our, it's our identity. It's We think it's who we are. Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, my daughter was asking what my favorite color was because she was trying to figure out what her favorite color is. And at, at, at the age of six, you don't really know much about your identity, but you can start to form what you think are things that will create your personality so that they just reach for something like color. But the rest of us, you know, it goes on. And I mean, and some of these things are, I, I would caution, you know, they're, they're pretty surface sorts of things. And, and the example you can use here is, is online dating, when two people are you know, looking to, when two people, you know, someone's trying to find a, a partner, a potential date, you have all these, you know, kind of surface interests you, you can write down. I mean, the studies on the success rates of those are, are not encouraging. It's just those things don't really seem to indicate hmm. much about the strength of a long-term relationship. It's, it's a lot of other things, and arguably it's, you know, I mean, my wife and I had have very different musical tastes, for example, but we were able to overcome that because there were you know, kind of deeper forms of compatibility going on. And, you know, in some ways it's a better test of a relationship if, if I can actually tolerate her musical taste that I hate rather yeah. than that, that we just automatically love the same thing. Um, so that's just, just one indication. And sometimes maybe your like changes simply because it's your wife, right? So now all of a sudden you might find yourself defending something that your wife like that might not have ever mattered to you or that you've that's always driven you crazy. But then when someone else puts it down, you're like, ho, 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 hold it. There are people that like that. <laughs> exactly. And plus, you're, you're going to be exposed to some of those likes no matter what. And this, this is just I can't stress this enough. Just just from with music, for example, just hearing something just mm. repeatedly, it will start to sink into your brain. And, and before you know it, I mean, I sometimes work in Brooklyn here at, at sort of coffee places. And, you know, this is kind of younger people than I playing music that is not necessarily what I would listen to, but it, it just, it's in the back of my head all day. And sometimes I'll be reaching for my phone and opening Shazam to identify the song. Yeah. Hey, it actually sounds pretty good. Isn't that cool? But <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, but really again, that, that's a great, I love Shazam. For example, I did, went to a dance concert, um, a high school dance concert and you know, every fifth song was like, Whoa, that's cool. <laughs> And I'd play it, and this old 47-year-old man's playing Shazam, or listening to Shazam to try to find new songs. But um, it's, I guess this is it. And what you're really trying to do, it sounds like in the book, is have us be more deliberate, have us be more contemplative about what we like, what we don't like. 
Yeah, and, and your example is great, and I'm glad to hear you're the same exact age as I am, but, um, <laughs> so, you, so you know my pain here. But, uh, you know, people of all ages, though, I mean, not just our generation or the baby boomers or millennials, I mean, they always think the music of their youth is better than the right. being played now. And what's happening there, I think, is just kind of a, a memory bias where we only remember the really good stuff and we sort of filter it out all the bad stuff. So the comparison that was used to me was that your brain's almost like a jukebox playing the hits you loved. And, and also, you know, there is something about the age, there is kind of a sensitive period about listening to music where it really seems to have the most impact. And we also have the most time to to listen to music and it helps form our relationships. And that's kind of in that late teen period. So I think that stuff really does hit a special sweet spot. And it can be hard to overcome that and, and look and seek out new things because you're sort of thinking, well, why, sh- why should I even bother? I, I like what I like. So right. what's the point? Is, um, have you ever heard the song Sounds of Silence that's, that just came out, the version that just came out by Disturbed? Think I have. Oh my heavens! Okay, so this is what you got to do, Tom. Because okay. it was go look up "Sounds of Silence" uh, on YouTube and "Disturbed." Because "Disturbed" is like a hard, hard rock. I don't even know what you call it. I don't know the genre, but it's rough. And um, uh, but then "Sounds of Silence," Simon and Garfunkel, which you know I was raised on, and it's just a piece of heaven. Then all of a sudden, you hear a rocker sing "Sounds of Silence," and it's honestly, it was it was amazing. It was incredible. And it put together a new like for me. Um, and I, all of a sudden, I guess that's, this, well, that's what this is about, is allowing a space in your life to evaluate why you, why you like what you like. And like you're saying, know, know some of the reasons behind it. There's, a, there's kind of a rationale that's going on as we're doing it. But, man, it converted me in a second to, to hearing my music played a different way. And it was amazing. And you bring up a great point with just the word genres that, you know, genres are one of these sort of filtering mechanisms I think we use to just try to sort out the world. And, and they really play a large part in our life to the, to the point where someone will say, you know, I do not like right. country music. I mean, just writing off the entire genre until they happen to hear something maybe in a, maybe in a film soundtrack or a, or a commercial that they don't even know it's supposed to be country, but <laughs> then they hear it in this without that genre label sticking at the top. I mean... When I, it's interesting, when I talked to the guy who founded Pandora, the internet radio service, he said that he, he wanted to, in the beginning, he thought, well, we should just give no information at all to the listener about what's playing, not the artist, not the genre, nothing, because this would help get past these expectations huh. that people have. People told him this was actually a dumb idea, and it, it didn't happen this way. But, um, so, but just, just the point that, you know, you saw the word disturbed. You thought, yeah. oh, what is this? I what know. is that? <laughs> An alarm went off, like, do not like, do not like. But, right. you know. Uh. It's powerful. Um, and we've got a, about one more minute. What was the uh, – you've studied so much about our likes and our dislikes. Is there anything that just blew your mind? Any learning that you had that stood out as, wow? I, I guess, you know, just, just again, the, the way so much – comes from what, what psychologists call top-down. Like, we've, we've already made the decision before we've even had a chance to make the decision. That when, when, when you talk to prof- people who work in professional sensory tasting, these are people who have to evaluate food products. I would ask them, you know, do you, do you like it? Do you not like it? And they said, we never use those words because just, just using those words would throw off our entire sensory mechanism 
in terms of actually tasting that product. Mm. So it just it just it's like putting on a, a pair of sunglasses or something. It, it kind of blinds you to what you're actually uh, experiencing. So just I guess I, the, the appeal here is just to be more you know open-minded. It's not that not that you're still not going to think some things are better right. than others, but to not do this discounting ahead of time that we so often seem to do. Good stuff. Tom Vanderbilt, appreciate it. Uh, great work again. You may also like is the name of the book, Taste in the Age of Endless Choice. Go to TomVanderbilt.com to get more information about all of his books and his uh, all of his recent tweets as well. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Keep up the good work. Great advice. Uh, don't just stay, just remain open. I mean, there's, there might be part of it you like, or at least you experienced it, right? Sometimes having a like or a preference, if you've actually experienced other things, might be even more valuable of a like. Anyway, interesting. Also, we probably ought not beat everybody up for their likes and dislikes either. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, and our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like. Uh, It brought up an an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with, um, with likes or dislikes. One of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, Maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If you don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something, but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long-term, to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow, 
and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work uh, in the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage, it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn if we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it that, hey, this this does this does well for for you. They they can see that it, it offers you an opportunity and maybe start where the people are. It doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice, but you can at least offer it. And if you're offering just a taste of something else, you might want to take it, folks. Um, I mean, I know we all kind of fall in, into our entrenched stubbornness at times, but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it. And know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. That's it. We'll take a break, folks. Back next hour. More tools to help you live longer and love stronger. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, It's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me, and they're like, oh, is my, is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to – I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh 
happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create I think some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older. Until they have finished school, for example, or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us, uh, and especially, and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an, an age group and a, and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the, the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on – if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they, they're, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait, wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing, wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. 
If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it, or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that, the, that people have become more unhealthily um, attached So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well, which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to in, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro marriage. You act you you don't want to marry a, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti-marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage, then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't – is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, And so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, Couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, The other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. 
you got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to you're probably going to slow down your path. So parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever had a strange or a wild idea that you had to force out of your mind? Just like get rid of that thought, right? For those who suffer from OCD, pushing out intrusive thoughts can be overwhelming, uh, but turning your worries into a catchy tune might be a solution for those who suffer from intrusive thoughts. And here to discuss intrusive thoughts with us and the power of songifying is uh, Dr. Stephen Hayes. And uh, Dr. Hayes is a professor of behavioral analysis at University of Nevada, Reno. He's the author of 38 or more books and uh, is also the developer of the relation frame theory. We'll talk to him about as much of this as we can. Dr. Stephen Hayes, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. What uh, You talk about um, songs and singing and music as a means to helping to, I guess, get rid of, to, to destroy or re-script uh, intrusive thoughts. What, what do you mean by intrusive thoughts? Well, it's the kind of things that we normally struggle with that we try to push out of mind. And I don't think you really can get rid of them or destroy them, but you can see them in flight in the the power that they have over you is they sort of pull you into that cognitive network that has set of associations and relationships that you've learned. And once you're in there, you're kind of uh, have less power over where your mind is going to go. If you can back up and watch that it's taking you there, then you have some choices about where you're going to put your attention and what you're going to do in your life. And so that's really the pivot point. If huh. you, uh, once, once you're, once you've got your, uh, you're uh, you're locked into a battle with your thoughts. You're pretty much uh, already at their mercy, and we're trying to catch people the few milliseconds before that happens, and get some choice into the situation. Is you call it the cognitive network? I guess so. Once you kind of get in the the what is it? Are you like in? The, you're already like on the slide. Then <laughs> the slide's going to naturally follow the network right to the pool of emotion that'll sure. just take and over. If I said Mary had a little, yeah, there's just no way that Lamb's not going to show up. It, that's innocent in that case, but suppose it's uh, deep down I'm not a good person or uh, I'm not lovable or 
you know, I'm going to contamin- contaminate my children. Or, and, and when you run from these thoughts and try to do something to get rid of them, actually you're elaborating that network. We've shown in our research that the places that you go when you try to run eventually remind you of the, pl- the things that you're running from. Hmm. So if, for example, you tried to think of something to distract yourself from a, a random uh, thought that may have occurred to you that frightened you in some way, the way that you went to distract yourself now within just a matter of minutes will remind you of where you came from. So that's some of what you see in OCD. Hmm. Almost, almost everybody has odd thoughts. Like if you're driving on a bridge, what, what would it be like to uh, turn the wheel and fly off into the space? The difference is that people who develop uh, OCD, etc., are the ones who struggle with them most, not the ones who have the odd thoughts. We all have them. Hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I guess really what a lot of this is, is this is just our patterning of thinking and our way of thinking, and I guess trying to correct ourselves. I mean, it's an interesting point because when someone's, for example, trying to break a habit, um, if they if they think too much about trying to not have that feeling, you're saying they might end up actually ingraining it deeper. Well, we've all lived through that one with uh, a diet, haven't we? Yeah. I mean, don't think about that donut that's <laughs> in the uh, back of the refrigerator, and pretty soon you find yourself, uh, you know, digging to the back of the refrigerator. And, you know, habits are better built by this kind of patterns of action that become automatic. And that's some of what happens in our minds when, when we're constantly feeding them with this struggle message. So when, if you're going to break out of the struggle with your thoughts, you need to develop a habit of sort of openness, curiosity, and then having the flexible attention to be able to focus towards your values and behavior and linking your behavior to your values. So we try to catch that moment where our thoughts sort of overwhelm us or dominate us. We call it cognitive fusion where you disappear into that cognitive network. Almost like daydreaming, I mean, if you uh, are driving down the street, you may daydream and suddenly realize you've gone miles without being aware of what's going on. You're off in your mind. Well, in some ways, we can do that for months and years on end as we fall into the daydream of I'm a bad person or uh, you know, no one will ever want to be with me or there's something, deep down there's something wrong with me or... And these are the kind of things that visited us all, but what we do with them determines whether or not they're going to really create a problem for us. So when you work with clients, your I guess your goal is to help to get them in this state of cognitive, uh, in that state of, I guess, cognitive fusion, right, where they're, uh, they're able to look at it. What we're trying to get them to is what we call cognitive defusion. Defusion. Essentially, what, what we try to do is slow the mind down and to notice where it takes you with a sense of curiosity and openness and self-kindness or compassion. After all, your thoughts are sort of have a mind of their own. And sometimes people get uh, with difficult thoughts, almost this kind of scrupulous uh, perspective that if you think a thought, you've done something bad. And actually, that's, that's bad theology in every one of the major religions. If you will a thought, you can do something bad. But if you merely think a thought, that, that's something that just happens to us all. Right. So if you catch that moment before that sort of act of choice to, to follow the thought out happens. And so some of the things that we do, well, we might start out with just an open kind of awareness process, like imagining that as you look at the cars going by on the freeway, if you were sitting uh, 
sitting uh, and watching them go by that with each thought, put it on one of the cars and just let it go by. Hmm. And just practice allowing thoughts to come and go without grabbing them, holding them, pushing them, trying to race them, change them, but just noticing them in kind of an open sense. When and and people have, have that, they, we have the ability to do that. Say it again? We have the ability to do that. We have the ability to do that. And in fact, all of our contemplative traditions or contemplative prayer traditions, things of that kind, teach us, I think, to keep our focus. And then when other things come up, to, to allow them to simply go by and bring our focus back to what we're doing. And that, that mixture of being open to the distractions that go by, because if you grab it and focus on it, well, now you've lost your focus. Mm. And then coming back to what you choose to focus on, that sort of one-two punch of openness and then redirecting attention, or in all of our contemplative traditions, meditation traditions, and so forth. And so that's one place we start. But when we've done that, then we may actually play around with some of the things that we've developed in the laboratory, hundreds of methods, but I'll give you a few examples. One that was developed at the turn of the century by a guy named Titchener, father of American psychology, really, and we were the first to ever use it clinically, which is just if you have a difficult thought that's really sticky, distill it down to a single word and say it out loud fast for about 30 seconds. So if you have a thought that you're a loser, let's say, distill it down to loser, say loser out loud fast for about 30 seconds. And by the end of that 30 seconds, there's a sense of disconnection from the thought. The thought begins to lose its meaning, and the, the uh, upset that it produces goes down, the sense of believability in it goes down. Hmm. And the next time that thought occurs, I'm a loser, you'll have just a little bit of a fragment of loser, 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 to the of meaninglessness, and it'll give you a choice as to whether or not you then run out after it or fight with it. No, I'm not a loser. And next thing you know, you're in the middle of this well-worn battle that you know is going to end up with you disappearing into it and, and in a sense losing in the effort to win. Hmm. Instead, better not to fight at all. Just allow that thought to come and go and redirect your attention towards what you care about. Does it get, and it gets better every time you do that? It just it has less hold on you? Well, we've, we've actually shown that, yeah, in controlled research, that this kind of word repetition allows people then to, over time, not just in the moment when you're doing it, have more sense of openness and choice about these difficult thoughts that emerge. And the one that you mentioned in the intro, the Song of Five, especially with adolescents and so forth, we, we like doing things. After we get into the spirit of it, you usually start with things like this, this thought observation, uh, this kind of open most meditative thing, and then things like word repetition. But eventually, the more humorous ones will come up, or we'll actually do things like create depression rap songs, <laughs> or uh, you know, put uh, uh, um, thoughts to the voice of your least favored politician, or <laughs> perhaps Donald Duck. Perhaps Donald Duck could be the one to tell you you're a loser. Interesting, yeah, because it changes the whole thing if it's Donald Duck, you know, a lispy duck talking to you. Well, exactly, since if you have this kind of associative process, or if I say Mary had a little, you're going to have that thought. When mm-hmm. you have well-worn thoughts, they occur repeatedly, and they're so grooved in our brain, and there's no delete button in the brain. There's no subtraction. It's all addition and multiplication. And so instead of trying to find the magic eraser and the delete button, if you change the context by, for example, saying them in a funny voice, it changes their impact, and then the next time they occur, not in a funny voice, 
you have a little bit of remember, remembrance of that funny voice version of it, and it gives you a bit of a choice. Wow. The thought, impact of thoughts on you is not automatic. You can change that, but you need to change them in ways that are more clever than we're normally used to, which is simply to try to argue ourselves out of it or distract our, ourselves away from it, which sometimes only amplifies the network and amplifies their impact. Yeah, it is powerful to think how how much they just, if you don't think about it, like you're saying, if you don't get into that kind of uh, early on openness and, and where you're actually able to look at your thinking, then you're just, I guess, riding down the river. You're just going with the flow, and that flow seems to lead you to the same, you know, pain. No, exactly. And it's, it's well-worn, well-grooved. You know where yeah. you're going. safe. And, and that uh, attitude of initial kind of openness and so forth allows you to bring in the, this uh, uh, more flexible way of interacting with your thoughts that we call uh, diffusion. Once you're there... You don't want to do that as an end in itself. I mean, we don't want to simply back up from our thoughts. Some of our thoughts are useful. Mm-hmm. But w- once you're there, you can make some choices about the ones that are worth attending to. And we get into more directing your attention on purpose. And in the work that I do in psychotherapy, acceptance and commitment therapy is the name of the work that we do or act. If you Google it, you can find many, many books on acceptance and commitment therapy if people are interested in trying to apply these methods. The one I wrote that's most popular, Get Out of Mind, Into Your Life, but there's several uh, others out there by other authors. Hmm. And Man. what we then do is we direct the attention towards meaning and purpose, because it turns out that if you're more open and flexible with your thoughts, you can bring choice in there and begin to focus on the qualities of being and doing that you really want to manifest in your life. and. Uh, that's worth linking your behavior to, not these kind of automatic, uh, uh, Mary had a little kind of... Yeah, reactivity. It, yeah, to be an active being instead of just a, you know, a reactive being. Let's, um, let's take a break and continue the discussion. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Hayes. He is a, a, the Foundation Professor of Behavioral Analysis at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of many books um, that are uh, so valuable in this area of acceptance and commitment therapy. He's helping us reevaluate our thinking and our brains. Stick with us, folks. Go to, uh, by the way, his website, stephenchays.com. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I was just thinking about how many times you've had a thought that you can't get rid of and one that you really want to, like, oh, quit thinking. You're so, you're going to blow it. You're going to blow this. Oh, you've got a big talk to give and you're going to just, oh. How do you break through and, uh, and and move on, really, to a healthier space where you can actually start to think about succeeding at, uh, at at public speaking or succeeding at something instead of just always being afraid of blowing it. Well, Dr. Stephen Hayes is joining us. He is the foundational or the foundation professor of behavioral analysis at the University of Nevada, Reno. He has authored more than 38 books and is the developer of the relation frame theory and acceptance and commitment therapy, and um, which is uh, a tool that he uses to help as we go through 
um, this process of kind of rescripting our brain. And he's uh, he's a great resource. We appreciate you here, Dr. Stephen Hayes. Thanks for being with us. It's fun to be with you. Talk about um, th- there really is. It seems like what you've been describing is there's a there's almost a pre subconscious thought or or something that gets us starting to to create a thought. And you want us to see if we could get into that pre thought moment. Yeah, to open up to. Essentially what you're catching is you're catching the echoes of your history. I mean, you can sometimes find these critical thoughts are linked to particular memories or feelings of things that you've had. Uh, You mentioned people uh, giving talks. Part of my interest in this, where acceptance and commitment therapy came from, was my own panic disorder. And giving uh, talks and stuff 35 years ago was just a horror, Mm. which was important for me as as a professor. And so I'd rehearse it and I'd be thinking about it and worrying about it and so forth. If I dug down to it, you know, part of it was wanting to be there and make a contribution. There's actually a positive side to it. Yeah. There's also some echoes of my history that were very painful that were in those moments. I actually gave a TED talk on that. If people want to uh, Google my hmm. name and YouTube or something, they can find it. And so when we back up and notice our thoughts, in addition to giving us more flexibility is where we go, sometimes we can have in that moment of more compassion or self-kindness, a little bit of a sense of the painful histories that are linked to some of these difficult thoughts, things that have happened to us that we are actually learned from because yeah. the flip side of these painful memories and these painful experiences are the kinds of lives we want to live. And a person who's afraid of giving a talk is a person who wants to do something in the talk. A person who's afraid of people is a person who wants to be with people. Well, and wouldn't it make sense to be afraid of giving a talk if you have a horrendous memory of giving one in third grade when you weren't emotionally understanding how to do it? Exactly. You remember those moments of ridicule or, or criticism or so forth, but what's on the flip side of that pain is wanting to contribute, to be part of it, yeah. be part of a group, to be liked, to make a difference. And those are not something that we want to close ourselves off from. So part of what is mm, unhealthy about the normal way that we get into a struggle with our thoughts is that we miss the deeper emotional messages that are inside this painful history, which if you flip over, is very close to the values and Mm. purposes that we want to bring into our lives. Sure. uh, we it, we do it at at the cost of knowing our own history and connecting with our sense of meaning and purpose. And, and by flipping to the positive side, I guess it becomes a motivator for you. It, it could be something that could keep driving you to go back and uh, and tame your thinking. Exactly, and the kind of a a kinder way, one that's not subtractive or limitative or self-critical. Very much as you might if you met yourself as a young child with some of these uh, difficult thoughts and difficult experiences, you know, very likely what you'd be moved to do is something quite kind for the Mm. younger part. But yet when we grow up and those things echo in the moment, sometimes we cheer ourselves so critically with wagging fingers about how we have to get rid of that, there's something wrong with you, stop that, Mm -hmm. all of which just amplifies it out and puts an emotional tone into those moments that actually disempower us instead of empowering us to be present with ourselves as whole people and to be able to focus on what we really care about. I've seen that with couples, too, where when somebody has kind of an attachment uh, disorder where they're pulling away because, in a way, you can almost see the five-year-old boy just wanting to be loved, but instead he felt like he was rejected, and now he's angry and not wanting to be involved in the relationship. 
there, there's an amazing compassion if we can see that in the other as well. Are there ways that we can help somebody's thinking that I'm with? Can I help bring them into this safer space? I think we can by bringing the same attitude of open, non-judgmental uh, curiosity and and this uh, sense of uh, awareness and and uh, flexibility, so that the real core of of all of this message is being more psychologically flexible, of being able to turn towards some of the things that we've been turning away from but do it in a way that gives us the flexibility to take multiple pathways from it. So if, if you actually listen more deeply, for example, asking uh, someone who's really struggling about this, about a particular thought or something, about their own emotional experience, about, you know, what, a, what does that remind them of? How long has that been going on? Are there other places this shows up? Uh, what could we do when in a couple that we're in that space that would be healthy and moving us towards what we really value as a couple. Mm. So we can play this out at the group level. You can do the same thing. In fact, we've taken acceptance and commitment therapy and put it into organizations and businesses and schools, and we find that the very same principles apply at the level of the group and the organization. If you're managing somebody in your work environment and you give them no place to put difficult emotions or thoughts uh, you've actually created disempowered workers who are going to be less effective for you. Which, which is, I guess, I mean, that's the, the, I guess the concept of acceptance theory is if I don't feel accepted, I'm, I'm going to shut down, reject, pull away, disconnect. Exactly. And so psychologically flexible workers who are more open and more able to redirect attention towards meaning and purpose, towards values, the values of the business organization, et cetera, are empowered workers. And so this acceptance doesn't mean um, tolerance or resignation. It doesn't mean accepting behavior that's unacceptable. Yeah, it doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean agreement. It means starting where you are with your history, which includes painful moments and difficult thoughts, and to do that with a sense of openness curiosity, and being able then to start from a, a solid foundation of it's okay to be me, and it's okay to start from where I am. Mm. And then let's find what we can do in the world of behavior to really build the kind of lives that we want to live as individuals, as couples, and as in our work environments, and our churches, our schools, etc. Yeah. Because we do, we, we seem to be, and maybe this is part of our human nature, but it's also, I guess, part of our stinking thinking that we've got um, sometimes, is that I don't, I almost don't want to hear what you're saying because what you did was so wrong. But I can go back and understand and understand and show acceptance and love for their, I mean, I'll probably agree with a lot of their emotional turmoil or even just not even agree but I can I can understand it and I can empathize with it and that doesn't mean the outcome of what they did is right either right well, but it, but it opens it, them it up it isn't just it isn't just the disagreement sometimes we see in others the weaknesses that we have and uh. we've noticed that people who sometimes are very critical about certain features of others these are things that are in the shadows in the in their own uh, psychological closets. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's this uh, dumbing down of awareness even of our own 
histories and, and weaknesses and difficulties and struggles when, when we fail to listen with compassion to the struggles of uh, others. But that doesn't mean that we lose judgment, as you say, about the end product. And so if we're going to empower each other to focus on what's important and get our behavior linked to that, it's better to do that by starting where we are and we're whole human beings uh, with a history. But we can carry that forward one step at a time into a direction that will lead us. None of us are finished products and none of us are about to win a prize for Mm -hmm. uh, how great and grand we are. We're, We're a work in progress. And it's, it's more the ability to continuously reorient. And so that these, these techniques of diffusion and acceptance are not ends in themselves. They're so that we can reorient towards uh, values and purpose. Mm. It really, uh, it's profound. And I, I see it with so many in my own life. I see it with myself. And I've always tried to wonder how I how i how i slow it down but what i hear you saying is the number one key is just start noticing the pre feeling i guess the pre thought that precedes the the thought and just start being in that space and being open to looking at it if i could send you uh, uh, away with a, uh, an image for how to do that yeah yeah some of these things have such a long history and you you mentioned uh you know sometimes if you can see you know, that's the person in front of you who's making mistakes or has a five-year-old boy. Do that with yourself. I mean, you take some of these difficult thoughts and feelings that back, have a history. The ones that are really hard for us tend to be old. And put take a little moment to imagine yourself as young as you can go, that issue is still there or beginning. And take the critical thought. You know, you're no good. You always screw up. Nobody will ever love you, whatever. And take it all the way down to yourself as a child. Picture yourself in front of yourself. And have that kid you imagine say that same words in the child's voice. Mm. And my guess is you're not going to want to slap them. You're not right. going to want to you know, shake them. You're not going to want to wag a finger at them. You're probably more like wanting to hug the, the, uh, a kid who's... You know, dealing with something that's difficult. Well, then bring that same posture to yourself. You're a whole human being. You know, you belong here. You're you're a valid human being. And and then don't stop there. From there, now let's move and reorient towards that point in the distance that we want to head towards and walk together. Mm. But bring the kid with you. Don't uh, don't leave him behind. Yeah. Even if he if, if he has some wounds and difficult thoughts. Because the kid will just keep making issues for you anyway. <laughs> you got to. Yeah, they're going to come along like the kids <laughs> in the back seat of the car on a family vacation, and they're going to keep going, good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, exactly. If we can bring a posture of, uh, of of kindness to it, and catch these early thoughts before we get into the automatic pilot mode, um, then you got some hope. Stephen C. Hayes, thank you so much for your uh, your insight. Great insight. And again, everybody, go look at the website, stephenchayes.com. Continue looking into his books as well. Uh, it's it's we got to get on these thoughts and uh, not do it in a you know in a fearful way. Just understanding, openness. Look for the little child. We'll take a break. Come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back.
Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Because it doesn't come with a handbook, you need some tools, right? Well, we just heard some, some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. The, it, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you, if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop, I got to stop it, oh my heavens, because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you, once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. And then they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. (sighs) Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved – then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought – that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and 
pain, what we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the thoughts you have, and then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to you know get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. We'll take a break, folks. Come back a whole other hour. Coming up next, we're talking parenting, by the way. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 